Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts always be acceptable in thy sight, for thou art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I invite uh, children to go with uh, Mrs. Templeton to the Blue Room. There's, it's another one of those sermons with some adult themes, so... I want to start with a selection today from C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. Um, the premise of The Great Divorce is a man on a bus, and the bus, although he doesn't know it, is going from hell up into heaven. And he meets, uh, what happens in this book is that uh, these various figures meet with someone who's been sent from them, from the throne of God, to usher them in up deeper or higher up and further in into heaven. Uh, and so we start with one of these particular people um, having a conversation with the person on the way up. And these people know each other from the past life. Oh no, it's not as bad as that. I haven't got my rights, said the man, or I should not be here. You will not get yours either. You'll get something far better. Never fear. That's just what I say. I haven't got my rights. I always done my best and I never done nothing wrong. And what I don't see is why I should be put below a bloody murderer like you. Who knows whether you will be? Only be happy and come with me. What do you keep arguing for? I'm only telling you that I am a chap. I am. I want my rights. I'm not asking for anyone's bleeding charity. Then do, at once. Ask for the bleeding charity. Everything here is for asking, and nothing can be bought. That you may do very well for you, I dare say, if they choose to let a bloody murderer, all because he makes a poor mouth at the last moment, that's their lookout. But I don't see myself going in the same boat as you, see? Why should I? I don't want charity. I'm a decent man. And if I had my rights, I'd have been here long ago. And you can tell them that I said so. The other shook his head. You can never do it like that, he said. Your feet will never grow hard enough to walk on the grass that way. You'd be tired before we got to the mountains. And it's exactly true, you know. Mirth danced in his eyes as he said it. What is true? asked the ghost sulkily. You weren't a decent man, and you didn't do your best. We none of us were, and none of us did. Lord bless you, it doesn't matter. There is no need to go into all that now. You, gasped the ghost, you have the face to tell me that I wasn't a decent chap? Of course. Must I go into all that? I will tell you one thing to begin with. Murdering old Jack wasn't the worst thing I did. That was the work of a moment, and I was half mad when I did it. But I murdered you in my heart deliberately for years. I used to lie awake at nights thinking what I could do to you if I ever got the chance. That's why I've been sent to you now, to ask your forgiveness and to be your servant as long as you need one, and longer if it pleases you. I am the worst. But all the men who worked under you felt the same. You made it hard for us, you know. 
and you made it hard for your wife too, and for your children. You mind your own business, young man, said the ghost. None of your lips see, because I'm not taking any imprudence from others about my private affairs. There are no private affairs, said the other. There are no private affairs, said the other. Last week, St. Paul was talking, writing to the Corinthians, and taking them to task for not confronting sexual sin in their midst. And the reason that he gave was their spiritual pride and arrogance. This week, we continue on with that theme. So if you have your Bibles with you, open up with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or I invite you to open up a pew Bible, if you don't have your own, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And before we continue on with today's passage that uh, Barney read for us, we have to once again look at the beginning of chapter 6, which we didn't have time to get to last week. Why does St. Paul jump to teaching at chapter 6 about Christians in court? You know, we were having a conversation before the service. It actually seems to not make sense to our 21st century eyes, right? He goes from talking about sexual immorality at the end of chapter 5, and then he jumps to lawsuits in chapter 6, and then he jumps back to sexual immorality at verse 12, where we picked up today. What's going on here? Is Paul just being sloppy? Does St. Paul not know uh, how to organize an essay? that most of us would have learned in high school? No, that's not what's going on at all. Paul is drawing something here out for us that there's a singular attitude that unites sexual immorality here with abuse of one's neighbor. You see, as former soldiers and libertines, which we might call free men, people that were slaves and made free, and now merchants that compose the... Um, city of Corinth, these people have lots of money and freedom. And because they are former slaves and military men, they're obsessed with their rights. Kind of makes sense, right? If you'd spent time being told where to go, whom to fight, what to do, you're going to be concerned about your rights. Uh, commentator David Pryor writes, the Corinthians were concerned most of the time with their rights. Their rights had virtually taken over their redemption as the mainspring of their life together. The result is that they're extremely touchy if anyone infringed their rights or inhibited their freedom. You see, while freedoms and rights are certainly important concepts when they're counterbalanced with order and duties and politics, Paul is making it clear that that's not the proper framework with which to look at the church of God. We don't look at the church in the context of rights. And it's a theme that's going to be repeated time and time again here for the next couple chapters. Um, if you have your Bible open, feel free to flip through just quickly. I'm going to go through this theme and how it, how it occurs. It occurs more than this, but uh, here's primarily where it is. Your property is not your own, says St. Paul, chapter 6, 1 through 9. Your body is not your own, says St. Paul, chapter 6, 12 through 20. Your sexuality and relationships are not your own, 
says St. Paul in 7, 1 through 16. Your labor is not your own, says St. Paul in 7, 19 through 23. Your singleness is not your own, says St. Paul, chapter 7, verse 25. Your right to eat food is not your own, says St. Paul, chapter 8. Even St. Paul's apostolic authority is not his own. He finally summarizes it in chapter 9. You see, the recurring line here is that these things are not your own, particularly when we're dealing in the church. The recurring line is, and variants of it are, found in verse 11. You've been sanctified and justified, writes St. Paul. You had yourself washed, chapter 6, verse 11, he writes. Verse 20, the end of today's reading. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, writes St. Paul. So do you see how this pervading concept of rights actually hurts us when it comes to God? Because it's antithetical to how God sees us. God doesn't see us as people with rights against him, but with people whose rights he has secured and given. The font of all rights. There's a higher purpose. And this section kind of seems anti-American, doesn't it? It might seem anti-American because we're all about our rights. We're all about our freedoms. Somehow we've forgotten that there's a bigger picture. It certainly is anti-Corinthians. Anti-Corinthian. And as a fair warning, these next passages are probably going to grate on you. I know they do me. Because it contradicts everything that we've lived, eaten, and breathed in our culture. But Paul does this because he wants to remind the Corinthians and us that there's a higher purpose. Because following Jesus and service to his bride is a wonderful thing. It's something into which we're invited through no right of our own, but because of Jesus Christ who has given us the right, who has washed us, and who has sanctified us. Look real fast with me at verse 11, because I want to point something out that doesn't come out very clearly in the English. He says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Now, you don't see it here in the English because we don't have the tenses that's in Greek. But if you actually parsed that out, what St. Paul is saying is that it's, it's called the permissive middle voice. Okay? You grammar, grammarians and people will love this, right? So, so what's the past tense? To have been justified, right? Actually, what we're just, um, I'm not good at this. Let me just tell you what it is in the Greek. I'm much better in Greek than English. So, I know that's pathetic, isn't it? You know why? It's because I had, I, this is a sideline, but I had this stupid thing in junior high called language arts. They didn't teach me grammar and structure. <laughs> they just taught me like, here, read this book and tell me what you think about it. Now, perhaps that's a very poor representation of language arts, but that's what I had. That's what I had. <laughs> so, um, the middle passive voice means 
you had yourself sanctified. You had yourself justified. You had yourself washed. So what's Paul getting at here? That yes, it's the action of Jesus Christ that does it, but you Corinthians, you Christians, you permitted this to be done to you, right? You had yourself, meaning you have submitted yourself to Christ in these things. And while it's Christ's sacrifice that has done all this for you, you agreed to it. This is what you signed up for. And then he continues on. Because that's here the argument that he's making. That it's through Christ that we're brought into the good graces of God. And therefore it's in Christ that we've agreed to all these things. Now let's look at chapter 6 verse 6. But brother goes to law against brother. And that before unbelievers. Two have lawsuits all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Paul's not a real big fan of Roman courts. Probably not rocket science here, right? He's been before a few. And he points out that the foolishness of taking God's people before a court is that justice is very sketchy, even with the best outcome. It's better to be defrauded, says St. Paul, than to go to court. You've probably heard the old saying, no one wins in court except the lawyers. Gee, I'm just offending everybody today, aren't I? But um, it's certainly much more, it's certainly much more the case in Rome. Paul's main point here is the church's standard for justice should be higher than the Roman courts. As he says in verse 9, but they've defrauded each other unjustly. Even when they're going before the court with a just cause, they hurt each other so much, asserting their rights for their property in place of the good of the church. Do you see what's going on? Chapter 6, verse 12. Paul continues here. And says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved, which some translations translate dominated, by anything. All things are lawful. You see, there's, uh, there might be quotations around that line in your Bible. Why do you suppose that is? Why would Paul say that? Well, I'll tell you. Basically, because this was the mantra of the Corinthians. All things are lawful for us. Kind of like what we might hear, you know, do yourself or be yourself, right? It's that kind of idea. All things are lawful for me. But St. Paul says, wait a minute. That's true. But, Corinthians, not all things are all things. Meaning, You've turned your liberty to license. All things being lawful for you are only the things that are in accordance with your good. With your good. You know, back in, in political science, I learned this, uh, this little fancy little thing that everybody seems to have forgot since civics. Um, maybe it's because we have football teachers teach our American civics courses. Um, but uh, there's this little thing 
that we learned that there's a huge difference between freedom and liberty. Freedom is not liberty. Freedom is just having the ability to do whatever you want to do. Liberty is having the free ability to do what is good. So there's an essential attachment to goodness with liberty that's not with freedom. Paul's making that point here, actually. He's saying, it's not all about your rights. It's not all about your freedom. All things is not absolute. What God forbids is never allowed, for example. What God commands, no man is allowed to set aside. Quoting uh, Lenski, who's another commentator, wrong is wrong and is outside the domain of liberty. Right is right and is also outside this domain. All things, what Paul is saying, are only those things that are permissible under the moral law, which is why he goes into talking about sexual immorality. But he goes further. He says that for the Christian, there should be this matrix that we set up in our mind when we're, you know, there's things that the Bible doesn't address. There's things that church tradition doesn't specifically address, like should I have my iPhone out before I go to sleep at night? Right? That's nowhere in the Bible. There's nothing, there's nothing directly about that. And my wife has opinions about that. But um, there's nothing in Holy Writ about that, right? St. Paul's saying, look, all things are permissible for you that are moral, but not all things are helpful. All things are permissible for you that are moral, but I will not be dominated. Do you see that? Or I will not be enslaved by anything. So what you see, he's setting up this matrix. Run things through this. One, is it lawful, according to Holy Scripture? Two, is it helpful? And we're going to get into what that means. Three, is it going to enslave you or control you? So let's look at helpful. The Greek word is sumfer, which means to bring together, to profit, or to benefit. Some translations translate this, all things, not all things are beneficial or profitable. So you could easily say here, all things are lawful, but not all things bring you closer to God or those in his church equally. You could translate it that way. Here's an example. While it's certainly justifiable to take a Christian to court for 75 bucks, it's not helpful to that person, to you or to the church. It doesn't help the sense of the larger goal, which is that you both grow in holiness and closeness to God. That's the first thing. Not all things are helpful. The second one, the corollary, I will not be dominated. Why does Paul jump there? I will not be dominated. The Greek is exousiazo, meaning I will not be dominated, mastered, or controlled. Do you see what he's doing? Remember, these are former military men, former slaves. He's saying, don't let your freedom take you to a place that you're going to be controlled again, that you're going to be dominated again, that you're going to be someone else's slave. Why? Because you're not your own. You don't have the right to do that. Verse 12 here is the hinge between courts and Paul's talking about the body. So then he goes on to look at two things that control human beings and always have and probably always will until our Lord comes back. Food and sex. Food and sex. Look at verse 13a. 
is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. What's the purpose of food, asks St. Paul? To give us sustenance, to fill the stomach. But in the end, the stomach's going to be gone. What's the purpose of sex and sexual desire, says St. Paul? Well, he's going to flesh out what that means later. But for now, he says it's for the Lord. For the Lord. Both are desires created by God. And many Christians over the years have misunderstood this point, that St. Paul's not saying Christians can't engage or even enjoy things of the body. That's not what he's saying here, whether they are food or sex within its constraints of morality. But St. Paul is saying, you've got things backwards. Church father John Chrysostom in his homilies writes, Paul's not attacking the nature of the body, but the unbridled license of the mind which abuses the body. I think that's a great line. He's not attacking the body, not saying that all things of the flesh are bad, but he's attacking the unbridled license of the mind because ultimately it's the mind that abuses or doesn't abuse the body. Remember what St. Paul's saying, the framework here. I do not want to use my liberty, he says in verse 12, to place myself under domination or control. And as Proverbs, our Proverbs reading, as we read this morning in our Proverbs reading, he says, the author of Proverbs says, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes and not be burned? It's a great visual, right? Picture this guy carrying a campfire next to himself and can he not be burned? What's he saying? That, well, that if we're playing fast and loose with these things, these desires, they're going to end up burning us. They're going to end up bringing us destruction. The Corinthian culture here sees nothing wrong with now and then going down to the local prostitute. Yeah, why not, you know? Let some steam off. Cicero writes, if anyone thinks that you should be forbidden affairs, even with courtesans, he's doubtless austere. So we have testimony to this fact that, you know, this is just part of their culture. But what St. Paul's saying is, don't buy into that. Don't slip into be dominated by a desire that you've chosen in your liberty. Look at verse 15. Do you not know your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them a member of a prostitute? Never. Verse 15 echoes verse 11. How? If we've been washed, if we've been justified and sanctified, if you're a member of Christ, and the, the, the Greek word here literally means limb, like your hand or an arm of the body of Christ, what right do you have to go and unite yourself with a prostitute. You have no right to do that. You have no right to do these things. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, is how he ends this passage. And why sexual sin here particularly? Because it's particularly hurtful to us. Look at verse 16. 
Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. Verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Against his own body. What Paul's doing here is just confirming the teachings of Proverbs, chapter 6, verse 32, which reads, He who commits adultery lacks sense, and he who does it destroys himself. You're fooling yourself if you think that sex is just about the physical. You're fooling yourself if you think that there's no spiritual component to our sexuality. Anyone that's ever been promiscuous, either actually or just with their eyes, with pornography, will tell you that they've struggled with it. Sex is not just about the body, it's about the mind. It becomes a snare. It becomes something that you lose control of. It's like a drug that increases craving but gives you a decrease in pleasure. And the same can be said about food and gluttony or money and greed and many other things, but particularly with sexuality, St. Paul's saying that it is the nature of it to be a union with somebody. A union with somebody. Sex is meant to create that union. It's the physical, sacramental, little s, the physical side of a spiritual reality. Right? So when we engage in sexual union with somebody, we're not just engaging our body, we're engaging our soul. And there's a permanent union that then exists between you and that person. And Paul makes this argument. He says that the misuse of sexuality actually harms our ability to be united, period. That the misuse of our sexuality harms our ability to be united or bound bodily or spiritually with a spouse, with the church, with God with the spouse, with the church, and with God. That there is overflow from this action. As Christians who have been justified and sanctified, St. Paul says, there's not room for another master in your heart. There is room for one master. Who is that master? Well, look where he goes. Verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. What's he saying here? That our bodies are a temple to the Holy Spirit. There's only room for one person on that throne, and it's not you. And it's not some carnal desire. It's the Holy Spirit. St. Paul here is warning them. That freedom is an illusion when we fall prey to sinful desires and appetites. There's always a war going on in each one of us. And we naturally think that it's a negative thing that we're not on our own. But it's actually a positive thing that we're not left to our own devices. It's a wonderful thing that we're left under the control of the Holy Spirit because we've been bought with a price, both body and soul. 
but we also have an enemy that's constantly trying to confuse us. Sometimes it's with our own desires. Sometimes it's with desires that are good. And we also have an enemy that's acting in our culture, confusing people today, terribly confusing people today with sexuality. It's telling them that they are their desires or telling them that they have to identify in some other way that God hasn't created them. Do you see how the devil comes in and twists the knife? Sometimes it's even through justice and rights that we get all twisted up. God will not let us go, friends. But to follow and grow in him, we have to read his word and submit to his will, to be fed at his table, to listen to the Holy Spirit as he convicts us. If you're struggling with your rights, remember that God is the great guarantor of justice, and you ought to allow your desire, even those good ones, you ought not to allow your desires, even those good ones, to entrap you just because it's your right to. Find someone to talk about it. Try to resolve it before it makes you bitter. If you're struggling with sins of appetite, desire, or lust, come to private confession. Seek out counseling and healing. These things don't go away just because you have put them off for a while. But there are ways out. There is hope. Don't stay in the dark. And finally, let your light shine to those outside the church that are so confused about these things. If we can't be clear about these things, we can help no one outside of ourselves. But we're to do so with charity and with love. Show them that there's a different way to true freedom. That it's not all about rights or justice, but love and charity. Plea for the bleeding charity. Plea for the bleeding charity and love of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. O God, the author of peace and lover of concord, to know you is eternal life and to serve you is perfect freedom. Defend us, your humble servants, in all assaults of our enemies, that we, surely trusting in your defense, may not fear the power of any adversaries, through the might of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.